Well, good day, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I reckon we're nearly at 200 episodes, which is just insane to think we've had that many combos. Now, I'm joining you up in Roma on Mandandangi country, and I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians on the lands wherever you're taking our podcast this week. Now, my guest today is the Australian Country Choice CEO, Anthony Lee, and I don't even know where to start with this chat. One, I'd wanted to chat to Anthony for so long. He was involved and spoke at the Ekebreki back in 2022, and he talked about the opportunities and the importance of getting agriculture in the education system. Now, from there, Anthony actually brought together a bunch of people, and they're really starting to make some ways in terms of how agriculture is part of the curriculum across Australian schools, and there's some incredibly passionate people working on that which you'll hear a little bit more about. Now, what we're trying to do at Humans of Agriculture is shift the stigma of people involved in agriculture and create a community from farm to fork and beyond. And I reckon when it comes to people thinking of CEOs of Australian agriculture businesses, they probably don't think of someone who is a surfer in their pastime. But that's just how cool Anthony is. In our chat, we chat a little bit about the business side of things, the challenges that he's had to overcome since stepping into the CEO role in early 2020 and we talk about how the business has evolved his philosophy to growing a company culture growing people's capability and one thing which was so cool was we were at the ACC camp draft in Roma and I loved how it was bringing all the station people together but what was especially cool was the family side of it the kids Jim Carner Anthony running around leading his kids laughing alongside other families and alongside his staff it was just bloody cool to see So I'm not going to take any more of your time. This chat covers a little bit of country, everything from mentors to opportunities, overcoming challenges, education in agriculture. But I think the underlying thing in all of this is just Anthony's passion for the business, but the Australian beef industry and agriculture more broadly. And I think it's just so infectious. So let's get into it. Anthony, thank you for sitting down and having a chat. I think it's pretty cool coming out to Roma and seeing the whole station and, I guess, cattle handling crew out here for you. It must be pretty special to come out and see them all. Yeah, mate. I, I mean, I love any time I get the chance to get away from the office for a start. But, um, mate, this has been something we've been building up and working on for about five or six years now, and it's just evolved over time, and everyone loves it, you know. And the, the more we do it, the more we add things to it, and the more interest it gets and the more engagement you get with it and you know it's three days now i think it's start off one two three and and it's just you know it's what they they're passionate about a lot of the people out here so you see and it's a tool of trade you know so it's really important part of the business but it's also something that people love and are passionate about so you add those two things together and you get something pretty special if i could do more of it mate i would you know it's fantastic well, and I think I might have got like a tiny bit of footage, but we better talk about the boss actually having a ride and doing a bit of camp drafting. <laughs> I reckon you might have nearly won it. No, mate, I always get a few extra points, you know, but um, mate, I just love having a run around and I think people enjoy, I do it once a year, right? Like it's not something that I practice for or anything like that. It's more so just being involved with the crew and having a bit of a blast and you get a buzz out of it and, you know, I jump on a different horse every time and mate, just great to get around and and it does bring that competitive side out in you you're like oh i gotta do that again <laughs> do better at it you know so oh, i love it mate it's fun yeah well it's probably you know someone with you had the most pressure 
on you of anyone. One, because you're the big boss, but two, they also want to be able to see what you can do. And I'm sure within you as well, you want to show them that you can ride yeah, and there's handle a, there's, there's a little <laughs> bit of that. I say not, but it, there's always a bit of that. But um, it is actually more about being part of the team. For me, just doing it, I'm far from the best. And, you know, it's not about that. If I wanted to be the best at everything, you'd do hardly anything, right? It's about being involved and enjoying the thing that they love and I love, you know, with them. So I think we'll come back and chat about the business, but I'd love to know, what do I need to understand about you, your early life, your childhood that has really shaped you and your passion today? Mate, I've always just grown up in the business. So for me, it was just something that was there from day one. We lived in the city. My father sort of, you know, he spent a lot of time out here, but by the time I was sort of getting old enough to travel with him, he was in the city and building the business there. So, but we did a lot. It was just always a part of my life. I just looked at it. I didn't really think of it as a business until I got a lot older. But the older I got, I've always said this, you know, when you start out and particularly in the meatworks, it's not something that naturally draws you in, you know, I've got to work in a meatworks type thing. But I did a lot of that stuff and it, you know, it was a good sort of learning ground. But but as I got older, what it was about was this is a food business and this is actually something really important and what better business to be in than something that makes food for people. And so I just went from it being a um, a production thing to actually a food producing business and just growing up from there and absolutely love what we do and always think about what more we can do and just always want to be in the food and meat game. Do you remember your earliest memories around ag or like a, a really early memory around the, the facility? When I firstly got it, because I was the boss's son and I'm 14, and so, you know, there was probably six months of, of serious, you know, trying to work in with the team and a bit of an induction process with the team where they weren't particularly friendly to me. But, you know, after sort of six months of internship with them and getting to know them, mate, I was starting to play golf with them and having a good time. And so it went from being something that I was quite nervous about going to every Friday night after school to being something that I, you know, quite enjoyed. And I'd spend some time with them on the weekends. And yeah, it was a change in my psyche towards that, the business at that time. So for you leaving high school, what were the options that were presented in front of you? Yeah, it was go to uni it was trying to get a degree that was probably told just, you know, wherever you want to end up, that's probably a good thing to do. I did business. You know, I think it's interesting. I look back on business management and you're learning about conflict resolution and different things like that where you have no idea about, you know, and it's only until you get in the workforce, you really understand those things. And so I think uni was more so just a time for me to do a few things like that, but start to work more in the business, get an understanding for it. And then I think after I'd done uni and I'd worked in the business for six or seven years by that stage, I just wanted to do something different and uh, just get a feeling for what was else was out there and, you know, what other options were there, wanted to see the world. And so I went away for a while and that was um, – that was a fantastic experience. Like I learned so much during that time, not really any sort of meat or, you know, career progression stuff, but it was more just about life skills. But I always had a bit of a drawback to the business and I was always, you know, staying in touch with the old man and he was telling me about what was going on. And he came to the US, I'd been away for about five years or four and a half years. And he came and said, we're about to build retail ready, which is the value add, the end part of the supply chain, you know, putting the cutting the pieces of meat up, putting it into a tray, putting it whey price label and sending it to the store. 
And that was really the, the evolution of the business of vertically integrated model. He said, we've not done this before. It's a new area of the business. You know, now's a perfect time to come back. You can get some training and, and development in other businesses, and then we can bring you in as a supervisor and grow you from there. And and that's what I did. And um, yeah, it was an exciting, it was, it was absolutely the, one of the hardest times of my life. I remember when we started that facility, we were doing 17 hour days. It was just, it was full on every day, just getting that, the factory fired up and going. And it was a couple of big, big years and very challenging years. And, you know, you question yourself and whether you can do it and are you the right person and all those things. But that resilience just to turn up the next day and, and get the facility working was a big motivator for me and, and taught me a lot about just, you know, as I said, resilience and never giving up going again, trying to do better the next day. And I look at our business, you know, the same way today, you know, you never give up. You just got to work through the challenges. They're always there. COVID comes, skill shortage comes, interest rates, you know, it's always there. The, the, the market where it's at today is not particularly favourable. So you just keep going, you know, and you just, it's all about the team. You just build from there, make it better every day. And so that's, yeah, little part of it. So you spent five or six years, you mentioned overseas. What kind of businesses were you working in over there? Well, not career progressing, but it you know it was every. I was scrubbing dishes, flipping burgers. I was varnishing boats. I was taking photos on ski fields. I was a postman at yeah. one stage. The main thing for me was getting around and seeing different countries. So I'd never spend more than sort of four to five months in a country, and then I'd move on, and I'd, I'd want to do a summer somewhere, a winter somewhere, and so I just you know it took me to all sorts of places, all sorts of companies. Probably the most the most enjoyable one was actually the photography one where it was all commission-based and it was all about selling. It was all about getting people fired up on, you know, here, I'm going to take this, do that, and, you know, and trying to attract people into the, something you were doing. And it, that taught me a lot. And I made some really good money out of that business, actually. It was quite interesting, that, uh, and had a good time along the way. Do you still take photos now or is it? No, no, that's my wife. I'm terrible. That's the other thing. I'd never, I'd never taken a photo. Like, you know, like there weren't phones with cameras on or anything like that. So I had no idea. Like I literally, you know, had to learn all about that. But so I don't have any sort of passion in that, I suppose. But my wife actually um, has, and she's, uh, she's doing a great job taking, um, getting around, doing a lot of ag sort of shoots and whatnot, and just absolutely loves it and going really well. There you go. It just passed on the yeah, well, yeah, the, yeah. the skills that we, you never had. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned before about the some of the challenges and questioning yourself in the early stages of the business. Were you the right person for it? How did you actually overcome that? Well, even to, I mean, that's the job, and that's I still find that today, right? You know, it's a lonely existence when you become a leader. You're in charge of a lot of people, and the responsibility is quite immense and you're always sort of, you know, things aren't going perfectly all the time. As I say, I still feel that today. And it's, you got to have more and more, you build your confidence over time that you are doing the right thing by the team and the team supporting you and your, your turnovers, you know, in check and people are sort of getting behind you. And, and that sort of builds your confidence, I suppose. Get a good team, make sure you're listening to them, make sure you're part of it, you're not bigger than the team. And um, you're not a perfect individual, right? So you create a great team and that's the perfect person is the combination of the skill sets that each one of them brings to the team. So I always say to people that I'm mentoring, don't be that person that thinks it can do it all. Be honest about your flaws, be honest about your strengths and then just put the team around you that sort of works in with that. And you'll be a far better business or department than you would if you try and do it all yourself. And 
And so, well, I ask this question a little bit self-servingly too, but so when it comes to, I guess, those, the big new ventures or whatever it is, and, and it comes with risk and I guess pushing yourself to the limit, what have you learned about finding those people and the decision-making in, and I guess trying to create certainty or clarity when actually you're trying to figure it out for yourself? Yep, yep, yep. And this is, this is, I still use this today. So we've got, you know, I always talk about culture before capability. Like it is, you don't need the best capable person. You need a group of people that have the values and behaviors that work well within a team. I've seen plenty of times where you, you know, this really capable person, but they're quite destructive for your culture. And they're the worst people to have. You know, you've really got to work hard. And it's easy to say, and it's actually really hard to do. You've got to really work on what your values are. What are the things that make you a great team and really live by them? And, you know, you've got to work through if people aren't coming on board, you've got to make decisions about that and move people on if you have to, because it's an absolute team and culture killer if you don't have that right. But once you get that culture piece right, so culture before capability, then obviously you're working on your, your capability. So we do a lot in our business around internal promotions and we believe in that because, you know, you're seeing that person then displaying the right cultural and behaviours and maybe they don't necessarily have the technical capability to step up yet, but they've got the makings of it. And you're far better off taking that person that you know and putting them into that more senior role and training that skill set than you are trying to bring someone in from outside that may or may not fit your culture. It is a never-ending journey, the culture thing, you know, and I sort of talk about the All Blacks and the Melbourne Storm. Like, Rugby Union, Rugby League have heaps of good players, you know. They're full of good players. Why are those teams so much better, consistently better than ever? And it's this culture piece. It's real. It's tangible. You can't buy it. You build it. And um, that's the thing that I actually excites me most. That's the thing I work on the most. I, that's, I look at it as my job. That's really what I do. And so how do you do that in practice? I think as a CEO, I guess your key interactions are at the high level. So how do you actually then make sure you're seen, felt that you are in control or at least have an understanding of what's happening across the business? Well, I think that's stepping back and going, so, you know, when I ca- I'd never had any CEO training, right? And it was just leadership jobs along the way. So what I sort of did was came in and said, okay, what does it mean to be a good business? And there was a couple of things I wanted to do. So it was firstly sort of set a bit of a, a goal, but also talk about what does it mean to be ACC. So I came up with a thing called AIM Culture Capability. So AC, Australian Country Choice, but also AIM Culture Capability. So what's our aim? What's our vision, our mission? Where are we going? What's our culture? And came up with this uh, Be Right value. So B-E-R-I-G-H-T, belief, energy, responsibility, integrity, grit, humility, and team. And that was our second, our C before our capability, our culture. So that was an important point. And then capability is the metrics, right? What's, you know, we've got our safety and our customer and operational excellence and people and culture and those sort of real tangible metrics. And so it's sort of bringing that methodology into the business. Like this is what it, for me, it means. This is what I want to live by. This is what it means to be ACC. We've got our three stripes, which is a butcher's apron. So back in, I could go on about this for a while. No, this so is really lock, cool. lock in, Ollie, lock in. No, this is good. So the butcher's apron, right? You just look at it. I, I'd never known, but those three f- stripes signify something. Firstly, the blue is the color that hides blood the most. So that's why the blue was chosen. And then the three stripes on there. So when you were an apprentice, this is in the 1500s or something. It was, this is ages ago. 
when you're an apprentice, just doing your trade, you got your first stripe. So you're, you know, in a five-year apprenticeship or whatever, learning your trade. When you became the master of your craft, you got your second stripe. And then, and most importantly, when you got your third stripe was when you're the master of your craft and you're training apprentices. And that, I just went, that's us. That's what I want to be. You know, I want to be the master of our craft and I want to train our apprentices and I want our three stripes. And so our three stripes are our aim, our culture, our capability. And we have our three stripes that we've put into a lot of our um, stuff you'll see around the facility and whatnot. So, so that was the first. And then the second one that was important to me was there's so much noise that goes on in a business. Like, where do I start? How do I work through it? There's, there's everything going on. And I just had a thing where I said, I'm going to get the right team with the right information. I'm going to give them the right information. I'm going to communicate correctly with them and listen. And I'm then going to have the right accountability. So right team is about the right values and principles. Got to get that right team. That's what I, And I just work around this premise, right? Get the right team. Never stop trying to get the right team. Not the best person, the right team with these values. Give them the right info. Like good people need the information. Have they got all the information at their fingertips to make the right decisions? And we've done, we've spent millions and millions of dollars on ERP and you know um, system upgrades and whatnot to give you real-time data there's so much information flying around how do you take it into a coherent thing that gives you the tools you need that gives me the information I need and everyone like all the way up all the leaders in the business give them the right info then communicate so how am I I had a thing where how do I talk to every single person every single week you know how do I get a touch point with everyone every week and it's still evolving it's not an easy thing to do but um you know we've done different things like the Monday morning muster I get we get up and talk to the business so that all the station guys come online or we record it we all our office staff stand up and we just go last week this week what happened last week what happened this week just you know giving people an update we're doing different things with surveys and information you know to get feedback back and just communicating you know because you always hear i didn't know about that or i didn't know about this so working a lot on the comms and then the accountability piece and i say only after we've done the other things only after that can you hold people to account so just really performance reviews and how we're living and breathing our values and those sort of things bringing all that to life so that's sort of thing i just rotate through right with all the noise that goes on i just have i got the right to why is there a problem have i got the right team have i given them the right info I, and generally you'll find in one of those steps you got a failure and you need to close that gap to keep going okay what just as simple as that yeah yeah that's all it is so that <laughs> but that was just me mate just going oh, i don't know what to do here so i'm going to think about it and spend some time to analyze what i want to achieve out of this and how am i going to take a complicated business like they all are and simplify it and make sure i'm all, always coming back to those basics well, i just find that so fascinating how like well from where i'm sitting i can see your mind working through those different things i was having a conversation with someone literally only this week and they said do you think the great leaders in business but in agriculture specifically are they smarter than everyone else are they harder working than everyone else or is it this ability to connect things yeah oh, they're definitely not well in my case definitely not smarter <laughs> They're humble. <laughs> no, no, mate, it is absolutely about the team. I am like, that's everything, right? I've seen businesses succeed and fail. Same assets, different team, you know? So, and I won't mention the businesses, but big businesses where they've been going really poorly, brought a new management team in and totally changed around. Same sort of assets, you know? Haven't changed anything other than the people. It is people is will make or kill your business. So for me, it's not about the one person, it's about having the ability to put a good team together, 
give them the vision, give them the mission. Where are we going? You know, I'm, my job is not to do everything. In fact, my job's almost to do nothing. That's what I got told as a CEO. You do nothing, but you do everything. And so it's all about just standing back, bird's eye view. Is it all right? Why is it not right? And then coming up with those basics, what, you know, to really... And that for me is the art. How do you get that? How do you get the Melbourne Storm? How do you get the All Blacks? How do you get the culture? That's the job, and that's difficult. It is, and it's a never-ending journey. And you doubt yourself some days. You know, like it's never perfect, mate. That's also the other thing you've got to always be comfortable with. So tell me, we haven't touched much on your dad. I, I think love the family aspects of the business, and it comes through the passion that you talk with is infectious, and how that then transcends across the twelve hundred odd staff you've got. Tell me a little bit about your old man and what kind of role model he was and mentor for you. Yeah, well, he was a visionary. So you want the long story? Yeah, let's go for it. Sure. So, look, he was out here and, you know, one of his first property, well, the first property that Trevor and Norm owned, my granddad, was Brindley Park, 13,000 acres, scrub block. He spent his, cut his teeth out here. You know, he would, they just had Herefords, I think. They didn't know who their customer was. They'd just sell it, you know, whoever. And he, he just hated that model. He wanted to know who his customer was and he wanted to underpin their business with his assets. And that, that was a vision that he always had. And he put together the, this thing about, I don't, it doesn't matter what animals I think's right, what's the customer want? And so he got the Coles contract and that was sort of a very small contract, big for him, but he really grew that with this whole philosophy to give a customer what they want always. Just ask the customer what they, you know, and that grew and grew into be what it is today, all on the back of that philosophy, you know, whether it's Brahmins or crossbreds or Wagyu's, whatever it is, you know, give the customer what they want all the time. Never not supply was his motto. So ours is this be right these days, but his was, you know, never not supply. And that was how he built the business. And that's what I've, you know, I've learned a lot from my old man. He's very strategic, very visionary. He's always stayed to his core of what, you know, is important in business. And, the, you know, one of the many things, most important thing is the customer piece, knowing your customer, giving them what they want. The other thing that I'd like to evolve that to is that, you know, it's not just about your end customer, it's also internally. So when you've got HR, safety, quality, all those service functions, they've got customers. So what I talk to them about too is saying, who's your customer? Know what they want and deliver, you know? So if it's a people and culture department, operations is your customer. Now, it doesn't mean you bend or break any rules, but know what they want, deliver for what they want. And if every department does that, we'll be a great business and we'll supply to the end customer as they choose. So he was, he's helped me think more strategically, I suppose. It's what I look, he looks over, over the horizon, which is always, it's hard to do. And he's been, you know, he's always been there. He's, he's my father and he's still involved. And I talk to him, you know, every second day when he's not here and every day when he's here. And we're always... We're not talking the, the minutia, you know, we're talking those big picture things and oh, he's a wonderful sounding board for those really sticky big things that you, you're grappling with and there's been plenty of them over. I, I took over the CEO role and I think the next week COVID hit, you know, like it was just, you couldn't ask for a, So there's always challenges and there's no playbook on some of these things, right? So you got to go with your gut and your head a bit and, and use the people around you and he's a master of it. <laughs> You sounds very similar to Angus Street. He t- he was telling me when I sat down, I ended up spending a couple of years with Auctions Plus, but when he got the announcement that borders were closing and all this, he went back to his computer and was like, Google, what to do when a global pandemic hits yeah. to a business? Like, literally. Well, I reckon AI would probably tell you yeah. that these days. I know, a few yeah, years but, too yeah, late. Mate, there was no... <laughs> 
what do you do? You know, how do you control the flu? Who's ever tried to control the flu before? You know, that's sort of what the it was. It was, um, yeah, I didn't try and Google it. I should have. <laughs> Did he find anything? Oh, today. No, I don't think so. So really interesting time because I think, one, you had compounding factors. You had a workforce that you needed more than ever. Actually, the public needed more than ever because there was, there was real panic. People in supermarket shelves getting gutted. The pressures and demands on you guys to actually create a safe work environment but actually then deliver for these customers. What was that like? Yeah, it was, it, mate, it was interesting at the time. And again, you just didn't know where to start with it. It was, and so what we did, a couple of key things, well, let's get some experts in. So we got some subject matter experts around pandemics and crisis management teams together, third party people that came in and sort of started to help us navigate, what does a pandemic even mean? How do they work? And they were amazing. Like these guys had data of pandemics that had happened, you know, the, the plague and all these things and what happened, the waves they talked about. This was before the real first wave had even come. And they talked about all this stuff that actually exactly happened, right? So it was fantastic to sort of get people in that gave us some idea of just what we were in for. And they wrote a script, mate. It was pretty much exactly what happened. So that was the first thing. We got our internal team together. We met every day like it was we met with government regularly we did a lot of things like we brought masks in very early we had a big marquee set up where we bought a lot of rats the rats remember the rats mm. and gnats we had gnats so we had the rapid antigen test we had the nucleic acid test which was like a pcr so we had all that set up fairly early on and every single person was being in the meatworks was being tested every single day so there was so many, 150 grand, I think it was, a day that was costing us. It was a ridiculous amount of money, but that was, it might've been a week, I got that wrong. But anyway, it was a lot of money and it was, but we looked at it as you had an option of being closed potentially or staying open, right? So what that meant was, one is the people coming through that tent knew that they were clean going into work, right? So they felt safe in the work environment. They were super spread out, you know, abattoir was a super spreader place and throughout the world, people were dying in abattoirs. So people felt safe. They would bring their families to get tested, you know, like we had, so that was a really positive thing and that kept the business going. We did, we've actually done a lot of things that we've kept. We created a balaclava, a washable balaclava with a mask embedded. So that's, we've kept that going. A lot of perspect dividers on all the, I mean, our lunchroom tables, so no one was face-to-face, but still we could house hundreds of people in, a, in close confines. You know, all the sanitizer stuff, That's all, all of that's still going today. So, again, out of adversity comes the good. And if I look at it positively, I'd say we're a stronger, healthier business. I think we've got lower, we've got lower um, absenteeism and sickness in our business now than we used to have. So, yep. you know, what is that? Is that... You know, I can't put my finger to say it's definitely that, but, you know, it's probably helping. People are turning up, which is a good thing for our business. So you've had, before I think we touch on maybe the education side as well, but you've had a heck of a run in three and a bit years because then also was the China ban as part of this as well? Yep. What was that like? China ban, skill shortage, interest rates, you know, changing the whole customer base. You know, we went from all coals to no coals within three years. We had to change four and a half million acres, 300,000 head of cattle, three feed lots and a facility full of 6,000 head a week. In three years go now do it and COVID and all the things going on at the same time so there has been a lot and it's put a lot of pressure on our team there's been an amazing resilience there I cannot thank them enough like just love 
what we've been able to achieve in such a short in such adversity and you know we haven't really had a lot of attrition with people so people have really dug in and we've come through so much it'll probably feel really easy we won't know won't know ourselves and when it no well you know but it has been a challenging couple of years it still is with a lot of the um the cattle market meat market's pretty soft and that's a bit worrying and i think we're china's uh, globally i think we're just starting to see interest rates i know i've spoken to some people who own a large logistics company throughout the world every one of their facilities is full of meat their stock turns have gone from six to four that's all protein. So, you know, if you think about it, interest rates rising, we're all just eating a bit less, aren't we? Or we're moving away from, from the expensive items anyway. And so, yeah, you know, we've still got a lot of challenges ahead of us to get through the next couple of years, but we're becoming a stronger and stronger business to handle the shocks and our vertically integrated model sort of helps us with that as well. So they'll always be there, the challenges, right? You just got to know that that's part of business and you just wake up the next day and try and make it a bit better. There's two things I'm really curious about. One, do you end up finding this nearly addiction to this adrenaline rush on the edge, managing no, no. You know, <laughs> no addiction to it? No, I, I like positive cut and thrust. Like I love the strategy. I like the, where's the next thing and the next opportunity. Love that. Like that's addictive. The really, you know, dealing with crises and whatnot is not, you know, you'd like to see way more of your time spent proactively than reactively. The last couple of years have been all reactive for us with what I was just mentioned. But so, yeah, just moving that towards a more proactive sort of, you know, growth, opportunity, diversification, what's next. You know, yeah, that's certainly enjoyable. And then the second part I was curious to find out about is what do you do outside of work to be able to keep showing up at the level you and the team need? i got four young kids, so I try and spend as much time with them doing, you know, they love their horses and their motorbikes and getting out here. We come out here as much as we can. I like all sports, so whether it's watching it or, or going and playing it. So, I, you know, everything from a, a going for a surf. I used to play a bit of golf, but I don't do any of that. So, but just getting out with my friends, doing different sports, family time. Sort of try and do this thing, was I was told, that, you know, you've got your work, you've got your personal life individually, you've got your family, you've got your friends, and you've got to try and do all of that a bit. I'm a bit lopsided to the work side at the moment, but it's really important to do those other things and just and take a break, like, you know, switch, take your four weeks annually every year, you know, and make sure our team does that. You know, out here historically is they're always challenging for people to actually leave but it's so important to just switch off and you know spend time doing what you love and you come back recharged so that you know that's all important stuff i did hear that you're a surfer it's like a a bit of an interesting mix isn't it one of australia's largest agricultural businesses with the ceo who surfs as well. <laughs> well? Remember, I grew up in the city, right? So I grew up. But Brizzy's my, not doesn't exactly have a no, great no, 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 no. My old man had a um, Trevor had a um, a unit down the coast, and he was a surfer. So he'd just take you know eight years old or whatever. I started doing that, and yeah, I love the water, mate. I really enjoy. That's actually where you're sitting out there at the back, waiting for a wave. It's just a really pleasant environment, you know, and you really do think all sorts of things out there and it's a very relaxing sort of time and very social. You go with your buddies and go for a wave. Love to get over to Stratty, let the tyres down, take an esky and take some seafood, get down on the beach and spend the whole day down there. Kids running around, teaching them to surf. You know, a lovely way, to, like Bush and Beach for me. Bush and Beach, those two are my real loves. That's cool. Now, while we're on the kids and i think a huge part of well 
it's really only just the beginning of the potential impact that I think you're really leading and a key part of in ag education. A couple of years ago, or last year at the ACCA, you gave a speech about the importance of getting agriculture into the mainstream so people understand and reconnect back to where food comes from, how it's produced, why it's important to have that understanding. What was the conversation that actually sparked this passion? Oh, I mean, Kerry the other day, Kerry Lonigan talked about the kids and learning, being told at school a few things about agriculture. That That's one of it. You know, I certainly don't like to hear that. I hear that a lot. So that's not just my kids. I'm hearing that a lot. I also just think it was seeing that I don't think we were doing it that well. I don't think, and I don't blame the teachers. Like, I'm not saying it's, it's the industry's fault. I think we've just missed this thing where there's a country city divide that's happened very quickly and very significantly and i don't think we've really caught on to oh hang on a minute we're losing that contact we need to make sure that people are understanding it as they go through school not because they all have to come into the industry but because it's critical right it's an essential service during covid we have to eat you know we have to be clothed and all of that it's what we do is vitally important and people should understand that so when I did that research for that speech and started to understand it a bit more, what I was really buoyed about, though, is that the schools that are doing it well are doing it well. And where it's done well, there's actually really good results, right? So we're not trying to teach something that kids don't like. In fact, not only do they not like, they love it. You've seen them running around here yesterday. They just get into This is all a kid's dream, you know? And when you get onto stations, you've got heavy machinery and all the other things that just excite them, not to mention how beautiful it is out here. So they naturally love it and if you just and they're interested and if you pitch it as more of a science and technology and innovation and the things that kids are these days interested in you know that excites them as well so we've got a lot to offer and sell as an industry everyone I talk to about this you know there's so much interest in helping to support this which gives me a lot of confidence there is some challenges about our industry and how it's you know sort of set up I look at it as a hockey stick, you know, it's a bit of backwards. You've got to go backwards, it's a bit hard, it's a bit of a grind. You don't go as quickly as you'd like to and you face a few challenges. But once you get the momentum and things start to improve, then, you know, you'll quickly see some upside opportunities. So we've got a working group established now that's got a whole group of really young, interesting, innovative, passionate people that I think are essential for this because that's the next gen. You know, that's who's going to make this work. So that's really interesting because we got to, like a business, right? you got to develop, where do we want to go? Like you can't just do stuff and not have any vision. you got to say, well, let's firstly, what does great look like? If we want to do this, what's great look like? Let's put that down on a piece of paper. Forget what can and can't be done. What If we could write the script, what does it look like? Where are we at today? And then you bite-size chunk it and you go, okay, well, let's do these three projects because we think they're the most important next year. And just chip away. If it takes 10 years, 20 years, whatever, it just, you've got to start somewhere, but you've got to always have this vision of where you want to go. And um, so that's the first thing. And then um, I've had so many people calling from big organisations looking to back this. So I think from a financial point, and we got like 800 million in RDC funds across all of the RDC, the 15 RDC. I don't think funding is the option. You do the right thing, you get the vision right, and you'll get people on board. You know, education, tick, young people, tick, agriculture, tick. You know, like it ticks all the boxes, right? So that won't be a problem. It's just getting alignment and the vision right. And then I'm working on a bit of a project at the moment around 
around like a bit of a timber top equivalent. I just the Geelong Grammar model. I've heard about model. this actually. Yeah. Anyway, it's look. It's just early days, but it's just a thing that I personally am quite interested. I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful model. You know, education is not about books. It's part of it. Right. Education's about building resilience to actually run businesses or, you know, be a great person in whatever field you're in. And that, as you know, as we all know, life is full of ups and downs, right? That's what you got to teach kids, you know, about how they're going to manage their life, how they manage their feelings, how they lead, you know, or how they be good at what they do. And of course, they've got to understand about English and maths and, and whatever. But I just think it's so, so for me that year nine experience where they go out west and they just get immerse themselves in everything and it's challenging and these are rich you know affluent kids that have probably had a fairly easy life and they're put to work by the end of it though proper young humans they're, they're running marathons they start off i think started running 10ks a day or something by the end of it running marathons and fantastic stuff and you know the so it's a brilliant, brilliant concept. We've got all these amazing assets around Australia. We've got so much to see and do. Like, why do they need to be in a classroom all the time? Why can't they be out and about still learning, still learning what they need to, but doing it in a different environment and different way? What's something that's maybe surprised you since you started this, I guess, real focus in around education? Well, what excites me is that I still haven't had a person say it's a terrible idea because, you know, one of the challenges with big in, dealing with the oil industry is you've got politics, right? 50% of the people hate the idea. I haven't found that, you know. So what I get encouraged by is that there's a real alignment piece that we need to do things differently and better. And so if that's there, if the willingness is there, then, you know, I think the rest is just effort, a bit of sweat equity, it's just time, you know, it's exciting. So no surprises to the negative. If anything, it's just build more resolve in me to, to keep going. Just another little side project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd love to know, what is it about agriculture? Why is it that, like, you've grown up in it, you were from Brizzy, but what is it that if we're to put something on the sector and we want to connect these metro people to it, what's the thing that we're... Man, I, I bring people out. I take them out. We go out to properties a couple of times a year with families and whatnot. I've taken people out there, you know, 30-year-olds, never been out west before. One, you know, we were flying up to a place called Deluga in the middle of the, up on top of the Carnarvon Ranges, right? Like middle of nowhere. She asked me where's the nearest ATM, you know, so she had no idea where she was going. And we went out there. And there was a bunch of them that uh, hadn't been out there before. We had five days out there and they had the best time, right? Like they just loved it and came back going, I cannot believe that that's what it's like. So what I think about agriculture is this, right? It is something that gets into, and the older you get, I think the more it resonates. It's good for the soul, you know, being out here, fresh air, good people. That's the other thing, the people out here, just the best, just the best people. And so, as I said, a lot to offer, I think, the more I do it, the more I love it. The more I get immersed in it, the more I want to come out here, you know. If I could somehow run the business from Roma, I'd be gone. <laughs> and I think a lot of people would be like that. I think COVID, I think, you know, I heard that there was a bit of a lot of people sort of moving out onto little acreage blocks and getting away from the cities. You grow up in the city, you don't know anything differently, but it's not. There's something about a city that only once you get out to here that I think you start to go, well, that feels a bit fake. It feels a bit not real. This feels real. So, yeah, I, and I don't think, I think everyone has that in them somewhere. It's quite like primitive, really, isn't it? That comes yep. back to the core. Yep. So, one thing we haven't touched on, and, and I guess it's the part which really fascinates me, is stepping up the higher level, the role that agriculture plays. Like, we know 
by 2050, there's going to be 10 odd billion people. We're facing increasing pressures as the world decarbonizes. But the thing that I guess we know as fact is people need to eat and the way we produce it here is, is incredible. What have you learned? And I guess how's the global interests shaping you and your perspectives of the ag sector going forwards? Yeah. I mean, you know, I look, again, I look at food and say, and particularly meat, right? You buy a bit of meat, you eat it, you go again. Like a pretty good business model, right? Yeah. And I have to do it. It's not a, if I want to or not, I have to eat. What I think, though, is there is major, major headwinds. You know, to, as you say, global population to 10 billion people. I heard a stat that said something like, we've got to produce more calories from now to 2050 than we've ever produced. I don't know who to yeah, came yeah. up with that. If that's even remotely right... You know, the challenge of that is immense, right? And in fact, if anything, arable land's becoming less. We'll be having more and more restrictions on us about whether, you know, water use, and so we should, to, you know, how we balance it all up to make it sustainable. So there's major hit with, again, this comes back to education, right? We need smart, like what are teachers saying when they say, oh, it's terrible out there, we're not doing the right thing and it's all bad and it's awful. Like, what's the outcome? We're not going to eat. We're not going to, you know, like it's all farming. That doesn't work either. Having all plant-based stuff like that's, they don't understand that that can't work. And again, it's not their fault. It's just not something that we as an industry have really got that message across. So we need to break down this thing where we're saying it's a problem to going, it's not a problem. It's actually really beneficial, but we need to do it more sustainably. And then we need smart young people coming up through the ranks, you know, up through the schooling, education, that going into the sector to make material change in our industry to, for us to do it smarter, more efficiently, more sustainably and help us on this journey. You know, look at Israel. They've got a desert there. They've got no water and they've been, you know, some of the stuff they've done there out of necessity has been absolutely incredible, right? And we're a bit the same in that we're not subsidised. We're a high-cost country. We've had to innovate fairly well as an industry, but we need to keep going and we need smart. We don't need... You know, counsellors saying, oh, that's a job that you do as last resort. They're the people that have no other prospects in life. It's just so wrong. More off the tools, jobs and on. More city-based jobs, as many city-based jobs as in the regions. Like, we need it all. And people don't get that. And we need smart people. We need analysts. We need data. We need science. We need technology. We need all these great people. That's what's going to solve it. You know, it's not us doing the same thing day in, day out. It's the next thing. What's the next bit of kit tech that's going to change things up? And that'll be smart. So this uh, year 10 thing or year 9 thing I want to do, one part of it would be you'd have maybe a, a centre of excellence there that the, the RDC, the Research and Development Corporations, put some effort into. But every year you bring these people out and you say at the start of the year, here's all the big problems that we're facing. We want you to spend the year, one of your projects is to come up with a bit of technology or a bit of, you know, something, yep. an idea that is going to change that. Every year you do that. And then you give them a platform at some big event sometime and they pitch it. You know, imagine if, you know, it doesn't have to happen every year, but imagine every now and again if something seriously industry changing came from that. Yeah. You know, these kids that are thinking differently about it. So, you know, be amazing, I reckon. Yeah. And I think it's, so, it's something so interesting about, I'll say, children, teenagers, when they come out, it's not naivety. They just don't come out with these blockers that we get up as you go through life. And so it's actually this whole different way of thinking in business as an industry we actually need. Particularly if we're taking them on the journey young and saying it's good, it's good, we want you in it, like, you know, think about it. And so they're coming with a positive mindset towards it, not a, oh, what's this sort of industry about, you know? So, um, yeah, they're the future. Yeah. So one question I ask everyone on the podcast, if you had the chance to go down and chat to year 10 students in a metro school, what would you say to them about a career in agriculture? 
it'd probably take a long time. I think there's so much to say to them, but it would just be that I'd want to give them the opportunities that they would resonate with in a city. Like I'd want to show them CEOs or, you know, senior technology, you know, CIOs or people that are working in and around the sector that have made good money, good livelihoods. They live in a city, they have a great career and just probably paint a picture that's probably not there. You know, I wouldn't show the farmer on a tractor. You know, I think that's a picture they've got. I'd want to show them the pictures they don't have, which is so much of what we do and so much more of what we need. Just try and open their eyes to that a little, I think. Yeah, cool. Well, Anthony, I know you've got a lot on out here with your whole team. So no, thank I've you enjoyed so much. it, mate. It's been good. I could keep going. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Appreciate it, Ollie. Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts. And, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.